Hi, I'm Amit Sharma at the All In Food Studios of the Food Decisions Research Laboratory at Penn State's School of Hospitality Management. Welcome to this podcast from our studio facility in the Marriott Foundation building of the School of Hospitality Management. Food and culture are intricately intertwined. We see the influence of culture on food in our day-to-day activities. Only yesterday, one of my students shared their food experience of making an apple pie with their grandmother using grandma's recipe. Cultural food exchange happens within the family, through religious preferences, with friends, within national um, identities, and of course, through your local place of residence. Cultural influences can define our food, and even us for that matter. However, cultural influences on food have and continue to be at risk of being lost forever from our collective experiences. Unless we take concrete steps to preserve this historical and cultural perspective, our foods, these connections that we have from, the, from, from our past will be lost. Native Americans have a food culture spanning thousands of years before the first Europeans arrived in the subcontinent. However, this cultural heritage of food is also at risk of being lost in history. In today's episode, we will get a deeper understanding of this cultural food perspective and how a handful of dedicated professionals have committed to saving this cultural food heritage and learn from it to enhance our current day food experiences. I'm delighted to welcome Mr. Joe Rocky, who is a passionate chef turned culinary educator. Chef Rocky merges his monkey heritage with a rich career spanning executive roles in fine dining, healthcare, and the casino industry. Recognizing the absence of indigenous culinary representation, he shifted focus on becoming a dedicated culinary educator. His journey has led to rediscovering and championing indigenous cuisine's history and rallying a community of like-minded individuals. Currently, as culinary director at Franklin Town Charter High School, he fuels awareness and understanding of indigenous culinary legacies while cherishing his family and personal hobbies. Uh, Chef Rocky, welcome to the All in Foods podcast. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here today. So, um, uh, Joe, if you if you if you are okay, me referring you to, you to as that, um, can you share a little bit about your background and your journey as a chef? Uh, you know, particularly specializing in Native American indigenous food systems, and, and what inspired you, and how how this has shaped your culinary philosophy. Sure. Sorry, that's a that's a loaded question. <laughs> That's a big question, but uh, one I'm actually more than happy to answer. Um, And it's surprising. The answer I'm going to give to you, uh, I have come to find a lot of other Native chefs like myself have come to our journey researching Native foods a lot of times the same exact way. So when I tell this story, I see a couple other Native chefs shaking their heads because they're like, yeah, circumstances might not be exactly the same, but... That's exactly what happened to me. So I became a chef two decades ago. Um, I was born and raised in the Philadelphia area. I am a member of the Pamunkey Indian tribe, which our reservation is based and has always historically been in the Virginia area. They were one of the first contact tribes. So when you 
hear people talk about the mythical Pocahontas and Jamestown. The, that was my tribe. Um, those were the first contact tribes. Um, so first contact from my tribe happened a very long time ago. Um, mm. So as a professional chef, um, I went and got my uh, bachelor's of science for culinary arts um, and became a food dork. Uh, really found that I enjoyed, after my first few years of being a chef, really figuring out why things happen the way they do, why they scientifically happen, what makes things happen, where do things come from, what is the history that influenced certain foods. And around maybe 10, 11 years into being a chef, uh, I looked at myself and I said, I've, I've had a pretty good chef career. I've worked with a lot of people that I would have liked to work with, was very um, exposed to many different facets of the food service in, industry. But then I asked myself a question that kind of changed my life. I said to myself, I was like, Joe, why is it that you can speak almost as an authority and tell the history of a certain type of pasta from a little corner of Italy that you've never set foot in and you've will probably never be there. Hopefully one day. Um, and you can create their food. You can tell people the history of it. Um, but if someone asks you a question about your own food culture, you don't have anything to say. Mm -hmm. And that question really bugged me. So I did the first thing that I, that I think any uh, kid would do at uh, 30 some years of age, I asked my mom <laughs> and uh, the answers I got didn't make any sense. Um, so if your ancient Native American family recipe starts with a can of Campbell's cream of mushroom soup, um, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, if you know the history of the United States and, and what grew here and what didn't grow here, when your recipe starts off with two cups of flour, but wheat didn't grow here, that didn't make sense to me. So I started to research deeper and deeper. And again, I couldn't find the answers I was trying to find. Um, and I started seeing more and more representation of what Native American food was. And it was all based in the Southwest. Um, now, our country is a huge country. Mm. The climate in Maine and what grows in Maine and what you can find in Maine is not the same as what you would find in, say, Texas. So mm -hmm. if a quote unquote Indian taco is a Native American food, why would they be eating a taco in Maine? And it just wouldn't make any sense to me. Um, mm -hmm. So I started going down this long rabbit hole of figuring out, well, wait a minute, what grew in that area? How did they use it? Why did they use it? What happened mm -hmm. to it? And what I found along the way is a lot of the things that I actually was told were exotic foreign ingredients really weren't. They were actually ingredients from here. Uh, the more I found out that almost 80% of the world's foods today are from North and South America. Take, for instance, foods that are intrinsically linked to other areas of the world. Mm. Tomatoes for Italy. Most people cannot fathom Italian food without tomatoes. Mm. Um, yes, they had pasta, but not with a tomato sauce. True. Uh, Ireland. What's Ireland known for most in history books? The potato famine. <laughs> Potatoes are not from Ireland. They're from here. I love spicy Szechuan food. Um, chili peppers 
are not from Asia. They're all from here. The list goes on and on and on. Mostly being corn. Corn is something that's in everything throughout the world, has changed industries throughout the world. Corn is from here. Chocolate, vanilla, uh, the list goes on, on and on. And they're, they're all foods that we eat every day, but no one would associate them with being Native American foods. Mm. So, you know, it seems like uh, that is a lot, lot of self-reflection, I suppose, right? Um, which is, is obviously where that's, that's where you want the, the, how do I say, the inspiration to come from. But sort of points also to the fact that that there was this you you felt the gap or the lack of this information um, in 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 the system, so to speak. That you know that there's there's general lack of um, awareness, I suppose, um, in in what you saw, or, or th- things were confusing that 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 didn't make sense. Yes. I guess what I- um. Actually, when I was in culinary arts college. I remember specifically, I don't know if it's my associates or my bachelor's course, asking the question because I had to learn about other cultures and their foods from around the world, um, the histories of it, the religious impacts and everything. And I asked one day about Native American foods. Now, obviously, I'm probably going to have more of a curiosity than the average student. And I was told they didn't have a culinary cuisine. Uh, mm. They had some things they ate and they mostly ate them raw, um, which could not be any further from the truth. Um I don't feel I was particularly lied to on purpose. I think that my instructors gave me the best answer that they had. Right. The correct answer would have been, you know what, Joe, I don't really know. Let's right. figure it out. Um, yeah. The answer that I got that I actually just accepted for a few years was, I guess they really didn't have one. Um, yeah. Now, I grew up in the Philadelphia section. I'm, I'm sorry, in the Kensington section of Philadelphia. It's a, a pretty poor area. So the one thing my family cherished was food. The time mm. we had with each other, I had a lot of food insecurity growing up. Um, but our family was always like a cooking central food, uh, cooking central family. Um, so I had all these rich memories of food. And my great grandmothers were still alive when I was young. And I remember them being these great cooks. And some of the stuff they were cooking wasn't really the norm of what my friends were eating. Um, mm. It was like a mix of southern food, but Philadelphia food as well. Uh, our mm. moved up to Philadelphia in like the uh, my great grandfather in the early 1920s um, came to Philadelphia basically because of the uh, Racial Integrity Act in 1924 in Virginia. A lot of the native men actually left the state because of it. Mm. He settled here. Um, so my grandmother, my mother, my generation, we all kind of grew, 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 grew up here and I'm Philadelphian through and through. Um, mm. But the food I ate growing up had a lot of Virginia influence to it. So I couldn't understand why natives didn't have food. But I remember eating all this great food. You know, that brings me to my next question. And you mentioned this earlier also that there's a, there was a lot of, uh, how do I say, geographic uh, variation um, in, in the foods, uh, even yes. back then. And depend, uh, obviously depended a lot upon climate for one thing. But how do Native American indigenous food systems reflect sort of cultural identity and, and, and the history of the tribe? So obviously there was this external factor, which was weather uh, and, and availability, but were there also cultural differences in, in how they approached the food? And did that even come into cooking techniques, for instance, that you were just talking about? Yes. Um, so the- G- give us some examples because it, 
you know, when you were talking about tacos and everything, I said, wow, this is, you know, you, uh, for for an un, for an untrained person, that would be the defining sort of cultural aspect of a food. But that's not true entirely. Entirely, no. right? Well, the easiest way for me to explain this, and I love using this example. Um, mm. I, I excelled at doing Italian food. It's something that spoke to my soul. That type of food, I love that type of food. Um, so I, I, I learned early in my career a lot about Italian food, regional cuisine, because it's not mm-hmm. all, all the same. Mm-hmm. Italy is the size of New Jersey. <laughs> and Italy has about 28, 29 very distinctly different culinary area, areas throughout the country. They're eating completely different things, different techniques. They even refer to themselves differently. Northern right. Italians refer, refer to themselves as the Polentoni, which ironically means the people that eat the polenta, which means the people that eat corn. Hmm. And corn, again, did not come from Italy, came from here. Okay. So if a country the size of New Jersey has so many distinctly different food areas, think of a country the size of the United States. Right. Why would all the food be the same? It just wouldn't make sense. Um, right. So one, yes, the to to borrow a French word, the terroir, the mm-hmm. ground would be completely different. What grew, swim, walked, crawled in those areas, the animals would be completely different. Weather, obviously, completely different. Um, and also, whoever was living on those areas, and they did mm-hmm. have very distinctly mapped out areas of the, these people control this territory these people control this territory there was a lot of trade routes you don't really hear about it but mm. rivers were the main trade routes so mm. like my tribe from virginia although we would not have been growing things like say cacao from south america from mexico we could have had them because we had extensive trade routes mm-hmm. we could have had them in like the same sense as they would down in South America. We would definitely not have them fresh. They would have been dried. Everything mm. that then was expertly preserved. Um, but there were extensive trade, trade routes. Now, my particular tribe was known for their ability to fish. Um, mm. Did wonderful things with fish. And they also used that as the currency to trade with other um, groups, be it near or far. Uh, mm. So St. Louis area had the uh, I might mess this up. Cahokian people, a uh, mm. giant trade route came right mm. up the Mississippi River and spread out from, from from there. So picture that area being like the spice route from India mm. to Europe coming through like the, the Italian peninsula, Greece, places like that. So you basically have that there. Um, mm. So there was huge amounts of trade. But yes, each area would have had completely different things. It's hard to give exact examples, but sure, sure. Um, in in my mind, the way I picture it would be um, okay. Corn is actually a great example of this. Um, most of the time in this part of the world, when we talk about corn, it's like well, white corn, yellow corn, and we're talking about mm. fresh corn. Okay, mm. corn comes in. I'm probably going to give you the wrong number here because I'm not a food scientist. Uh, probably about 140 different varieties of corn, okay, mm. from mm. white to yellow to black to magenta to blue to to giant ears, small ears, hard corn, dent corn, flint corn, all different types of corn. Um, mm. Every area of this country that grew corn, if they were in the right latitude, 
would have mm. had corn specific to their area. It would have probably been a central key to their diet. Um, mm. And they would have prepared it in a myriad of different ways that were very much so tied to everything about them, their land, the animals in their area, the weather in their area. Uh, sometimes even the, you could say the gods that they were um, worshiping. Native American communities are very well known for being tied to their lands. Mm. So that also dictated right into their foods. Mm. It's it's so fascinating as you're talking about the different types of corn. It's, 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 it's actually uh, a little um, uh, disappointing now, it comes down, when we talk about corn, as you rightly said, it comes down to one, maybe two different types of corn that we see in grocery stores. We're lucky if you saw the third kind. Um, and that's what it's come down to, that it's 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 basically narrowed down to a few choices that we have uh, as consumers. Uh, but just sort of related to that whole idea of choice, uh, do, you, do you also think the indigenous food systems promoted sustainability uh, in this connection with the land? And, and, and if so... You know, do you have some sense of how that happened? Uh, yes, if I, uh, I, I hope I'm understanding your question correctly. So um, this is, to me, a fascinating thing that prior to my research into my own food culture, even as a professional chef, I mm. gave this no thoughts whatsoever. Um, I don't want to say I didn't care about sustainability. I didn't care about biodiversity. One, I honestly didn't know what a, a lot of it meant. Um, mm. even as a professional that deals with food every day. Um, so through this, it opened my eyes to certain things. So for sustainability, I can say I can attack that a few different ways. One, the Native American culture was very different. Um, mm. I just saw this quote the other day. It made so much sense to me. Native Americans, uh, if you were, uh, I, I'm going to completely paraphrase this, um, the wealthier you are was not measured by how much you had, but by how much you could give. Mm. So in a tribe, Fascinating. if someone didn't have a TP, you gave them one. Okay. Um, there was, you, you used what you needed and you had a relationship with everything around you. So mm. it wasn't, let's go grow this corn and pick all the corn so we can sell it to other people. Let's grow the corn. Let's eat it. Let's preserve it for the future. We'll keep some for trade. And mm. what we don't need, we don't use. Mm. So uh, I'm going to go on a, uh, on, uh, on a limb here, but I, I read uh, somewhere that there was this, idea, this, there was this deep respect for the food system that every time you took from the food system, you almost, uh, I don't want to say apologize, but you almost paid homage to it in the sense that we have, we know we have disturbed the, the balance here. Yes. And, and does that make sense? I don't, yes. I don't know. If this... To be a huge sci sci-fi dork, because I am, um, if a lot of people, if you've watched the movie Av Avatar, okay? Yeah. Um, how when they took down whatever those animals were that were supposed to be kind of like deer, um, one of the first things they did is they thanked the deer um, for their sacrifice so that they can eat. Now, our bodies eventually will feed the grass. The grass will feed the deer. The deer will then feed us. So it's a cycle of, uh, of life. I'm going to sound really corny when I say that. It's a cycle of life, and they're very in tune to that. Uh, even as far as when I go uh, um, harvest these plants, I'm going to leave an offering. 
Uh, mm. Maybe I put tobacco um, under a tree. I'm not a shaman, so I couldn't tell you. <laughs> mm. uh, I like to tell people I'm an expert in food and I'm mm. learning a lot of other things. Other people mm. may be an expert potter, an expert fisherman. Um, and in one tribe, no one person did everything. Mm. They, yeah. they all work together. So you could leave an offering. Um, maybe if sometimes that offering was actually to help the land. Um, mm. One of the things I found out, if you're trying to grow plants in sandy soil, means you probably live near the ocean or, or water. Mm -hmm. Some of your fish and plant it under that sandy soil. Mm. And then you'll have all the proper nutrients that you would want because you're basically creating fertilizer. Um, so in one way, that would kind of answer that question. But they did have like a um, revolving circle of, uh, of life. I take, I give. Yeah, yeah. But it's so it, the amount that I need, not, not for greed. It's for a balance. Right, right. Yeah, it's just that's it's so fascinating it's just it's the there's the it's an essential principle that defines sustainability and not the sort of the labels that we look for in today's life that what is sustainability so that's that is so fascinating one of the other things um, that i actually learned that i surprised myself because again because i didn't know and mm -hmm. i'm like i said a big star wars nerd so back when i was a little kid i would watch these sci-fi movies where they're basically eating this flavored pro protein goo up mm -hmm. on the spaceship we're mm. kind of getting to that point. Um, mm. So we have this quick grow biodiverse, or I'm sorry, bioengineered corn crops. More and more every year they fail. More and more mm. fail. Every mm. year more and more are the seeds are in control of a few corporations and mm -hmm. they'll be able to charge whatever, whatever they want. Mm -hmm. Historically, now I, said, I think I threw it earlier, there was like 150 different varieties of corn. They grew in different areas, different temperatures, different times of the year. So mm. sustainability was built into it. Now, yeah. one one uh, tribe, I'm going to paraphrase it, they were moved off of their lands. They took their corn that they considered their sacred corn part of their community with them. It didn't mm. grow in the new area. Mm. Eight years later, they sent that corn back to the settlers that asked could they try to plant the corn. The corn mm. flourished in the area mm. it was supposed to be in. This corn was a smaller, squatter, but bigger corn, had mm. a lot more nutrition in it, but it was also drought and frost resistant with mm. the climate of that area. So mm. some of this bioengineered corn, the temperature dips maybe 20, 30 degrees one night. You just lost the whole crop of corn. Yeah. yeah this yeah, other yeah. corn, this ancestral corn, to the following morning would still be there completely fine wow that's incredible oh okay joe i i, I was hoping that you're not gonna uh, share the 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 other thing that we talked about so let me this, this is quiz time for us but yep. well we're gonna we're gonna make this um uh really interesting for our listeners we're gonna actually have two quiz questions one you're gonna help me answer all right so here we go um, so we have two quiz questions. Um, one of them, uh, Joe, you and I, we were as you were preparing for this podcast, I, I remember you telling me that can you guess the number of types of food groups that you use for your cooking now versus what was used in the past? So, so, so tell me what's the current number of food groups that you would use in your in your in your cooking, but don't tell the other one, okay? Okay. Um, 
So even as a professional chef, I would say I probably get my nutrients throughout the year from maybe 25 to 30 different food sources. Now, remember food source, okay? So if you say beef, no matter what cut of beef, that's one source. Yeah, okay. All right, excellent. And so the quiz question is that can you guess the number of food sources that existed um, what, 400 years ago? I'd say about 400 years. I'd say the the amount of food sources that the average Native American community would get their sustenance from. Okay, there you go. Thank you. Well-articulated question. Um, And then here's the second one. Can you think of a food that was developed by the Native Americans thousands of years ago? And if you were paying... If you were listening carefully earlier in this podcast, uh, Chef Rocky actually gave you those answers. Anyway, we'll have answers to those two questions at the end of this uh, episode. Um, Joe, we've, we've covered a lot of ground, but I, I want to uh, ask you, because we've been talking about this whole idea of awareness and education, um, how do you see uh, you know, awareness and education, uh, how can that promote understanding of indigenous food systems um, and, and, you know, to what consequence, what, what can we get uh, uh, from that understanding? Uh, well, the big thing I think is going to help this is food today. I like to tell people sometimes is a spectator sport. Um, mm. We have things like the Food Network, so celebrity chefs, things like that. Um, mm. So people are interested in food. And if anything I've ever learned is food goes hand in hand with the current topics. Um, think of the Afghanistan war. Even in a huge city like Philadelphia, you before the Afghanistan war, you may have found 20 Afghanistan restaurants throughout the city. And again, I grew up in the Philadelphia area. There's literally millions of places to eat. Um, after the Afghanistan war, hundred restaurants, okay, because mm-hmm. people were interested in it. So it was a hot topic. People were looking for that information. So mm-hmm. native cuisine starts with, one, people even talking about it to understand they there was a cuisine, the importance of that cuisine. Earlier, like I said, 80%, 75, 80% of the world's foods we enjoy today come from this side of the world. And mm-hmm. it wasn't that long ago. And if you look at, I recently saw a list of, of national dishes or dishes intrinsically linked to other countries. All their ingredients came from here. Hmm. Great Britain's national dish, fish and chips. Hmm. Chips or potatoes? Potatoes came here. Like I said, <laughs> the, the Italian food, just imagine that without tomatoes. It's literally almost impossible for most people to do. Um, yeah. So start, start the education, start the conversation, have people looking to try new things and as a related topic, the more I've researched this and the more I've mm. opened my eyes to things like sustainable agriculture, biodiversity of foods, um, the way the Native Americans did a lot of things, um, not just to say how great we are, but it seems that scientifically um, it was a better way. Mm. about sustainability and biodiversity. And I think more food scientists are looking at those things and saying, hmm, we need to give this a try. This seems to be working. Uh, a lot yeah. of people don't realize the estimated Native American population before contact, because disease killed 95% of people here, was mm. upwards of over 100 million people. Mm. Uh, 
So without the same type of technology Europeans had and without the wheel and pack animals, they were able to feed that many people here. Uh, there was yeah. a reason for that. And you know, you, you, yeah, you, you actually mentioned something that goes back to one of the, one of the other discussions we were having is that you, you made an interesting point that at that time, you don't, right now, you don't see any evidence of food insecurity or, you know, diseases that are, that are associated with food now or food habits, such as, you know, um, um, I, I think it was um, um, diabetes that you mentioned. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just briefly mentioned, is that true in the sense of, yes. you know, the evidence so, that we see? Um, again, don't quote me on the amounts, but diabetes is pretty much an unheard of disease here. Uh, yeah. Now, because of the rapid shift to processed, colonialized foods, um, especially for the larger tribes out in the Midwest that still rely a lot on the, the uh, provisions given by the United States government and the food mm. commodity system, the childhood obesity rate, I believe, is like 85% by the time they're 15, 16 years old. The average lifespan is 20 years less than the average United States citizen. Um, mm. That's all directly related to diet issues. Um, before colonization, tooth decay was not a huge thing. Diabetes, I don't think, was even existent. Um, I think a lot of other issues like, uh, well, just to put it in perspective, the average lifespan for the European mm. was 20 to 30 years less than the Native American when the colonization first happened. Um, mm. People here were generally healthier, much, much mm. healthier. Um, I can't run down to the end of the block today. Um, written accounts of Native Americans being able to keep up with a horse for the first half of a mile. Um, that's amazing levels of being fit. Um, mm, yeah. And working out only does so much. Your diet is all the rest of it. Are there, you know, you, you, you talked a lot about, well, you know, the whole idea of the lack of awareness, education, and those, that are some of the things that inspired you uh, to, to, to go take the route that you did. What are some of the initiatives right now? I mean, it's, it's very disappointing to hear that, you know, my only cultural experience, food, food experience with the indigenous cuisines is during the cultural uh, events. Uh, you know, it would be amazing to just walk down the road and find more cuisine um, on the street that we can experience. So what are some of the initiatives to try and create that awareness and, and maybe even spur entrepreneurial uh, activity, if you may? Uh, they're becoming more and more and more. Um, I am going, I, I actually wrote a few down, so allow me to read them because I will screw them up if I don't. Um, no, no, no worries. So a few that I've come across that I really like is one is called NAFSA, N-A-F-S-A. Just looked it up on the internet or on Facebook. Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance. Um, one is the, uh, I believe it's the Association of Seed Keepers. Um, mm -hmm. Also, you can look into a good friend of mine I've done some work with. Look up the William and Mary, the College of William and Mary, go into their site. You can look into Indigenous Food Sovereignty in Virginia. I just mm -hmm. did a big um, food event at that college 
where we brought myself, some other people that were chefs or from other areas of the academic or food world together and mm. were able to uh, open a lot of people's eyes. Um, there are more and more things coming up. Uh, you can also look into natives, N-A-T-I-F-S, North mm. American. I'm going to forget the rest. But to look into that, you'll be able to find something. Yeah, North American traditional indigenous food system. I think that you yes. shared with me. Okay, yeah, um, uh, Joe, I, I can I can hear the the bell ringing at the back, so I know you're you're running out of time. Yep. Um, uh, very quickly, um, any advice for for people who are going to be, you know, and especially those who want to pursue this area uh, as either entrepreneurs or uh, history buffs, etc. Google uh, any, and any advice? Facebook are wonderful. Um, okay. Look me up, Joseph Rock, J-O-E-R-O-C-C-H-I. I'll be happy to connect with anybody and share any knowledge. Look up Native, Native American food culture, Native American rest, restaurants, Native American cuisine, um, and follow links. That's what I did. I found a whole other community of people like-minded myself doing the same things. Okay. Listen, do you don't, do, is that okay with you if you include the link to your website in our, in our episode? Yes, yes, definitely, definitely. Okay, but before you leave, very quickly, can you tell us, uh, answer to your question, how many food groups were represented in... Um, 300. 300 different food, food groups. 300 versus the 2025 that you said, you did. Yes. Okay, here's, here's the answer to our Chris question, the second Chris question. According to history.com, here are seven foods that are known to be developed by Native Americans. You obviously heard those also on our episode. Maize, or what we call corn, beans, squash, potatoes, tomatoes, chili peppers, and cacao. Maize was developed almost 8,000 years ago. Tomatoes, 7,000 years. And potatoes and cacao, almost 5,000 years ago. Maybe a bit earlier for potatoes. Chili peppers were developed 7,000 years ago. Chili peppers, the spicy fruit, as it was called, got its name from the Aztecs. Later, Portuguese traders took the spicy fruit uh, chilies to India, Asia, and Africa. Some of those faraway cuisines are considered hot and spicy. Most people don't realize where they came from, the, the origin of the chilies. Anyway, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with two or more people who you think will benefit from listening to it. Um, and if you do come across different cultural uh, cuisines, uh, do explore them. You, you never know what you might stumble upon. And also, it's a nice way to support uh, the, the cultural heritage that is represented um, in our broader food system. And as always, make safe and informed food choices. Above all, please stay healthy and cheerful. Until next time from the All in Food Studios, this is Amit Sharma. Thank you for listening.